The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Living Well with Ann Beal. Our show is a health show, a lifestyle show, and an empowerment show rolled into one. Get ready to hear some stories of success, healthy living tips, and suggestions to get motivated and live your best life. Now, here is your host, Ann Beal. Welcome, welcome. It is a beautiful day outside, and I am excited about it. I am your host, Ann Beal, and I have a documentary superstar here today who educates America about food. His name is Curtis Ellis. And he shares with us his graduation from Yale and becoming an American filmmaker, a social entrepreneur, an advocate for sustainable agriculture and health food. He shares with us how this spurred him to become co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization Food Corps. He shared a Peabody Award in 2008 for his documentary King Corn, which he co-produced and starred in. And in 2011, he won the Heinz Award for his work in the sustainable food movement. Kurt co-created and starred in the 2007 Mosaic Films documentary, King Corn, which I saw and I love. And I recommend you guys go get it and watch it. You can get it on Netflix. You can get it anywhere. So watch it. The film, which the Washington Post called required viewing for anyone planning to visit a supermarket, a fast food joint, or their own refrigerator. We are so, so privileged to have him on today. Welcome to the show, Kurt. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. I'm so glad you're on. So you are actually from Oregon, and you're in Oregon right now. Yeah, I grew up the youngest of six kids uh, with a big vegetable garden and a big family dinner table. So food has always been at the center of my life, uh, as it is for many of us. We just ignore it all too much. Yeah, we ignore it. Your, your documentary on King Corn was very funny, the way that you guys ate during the show. I mean, it looked like well, you ate... <laughs> You know, we, we lived in Iowa for almost two years making the film, and uh, we ate the things that everybody eats in in America and certainly in the heartland, um, you know, cooked for ourselves when we could. But we ate a lot of fast food because that's what America's diet largely consists of these days. And if you're uh, on the road making a film, it becomes even more true that those are the calories that are everywhere abundant and available. And if you're making a documentary film, you're particularly seeking out cheap calories, uh, which leads you pretty quickly to the drive-through. So I think, you know, we fell victim to a lot of the same trends in how America eats uh, that the rest of the country has fallen victim to. Which, as you tell us in the show, that probably everything you ate had corn in it. Yeah, you know, Steve Martin used to... uh, do stand-up comedy in the 70s, and he had this joke he liked to tell about how um, he, he was imagining, you know, what if you went in the back room of a McDonald's and it turned out that all the stuff was actually made out of the same thing. And, uh, you know, little molds would go by on a conveyor belt and hamburger, french fries, paper box. But that's actually true. Uh, if you If you walk into the typical fast food restaurant today, 
the hamburgers have been fed corn, the soda is sweetened with corn, and the french fries are fried in a mix of corn oil and soybean oil, and the box it comes in actually has a corn-based wax on it. Uh, so you really are, are eating an entire diet that might look diverse, but it turns out it's all uh, refined corn by the time it's done. I didn't know the box was even coated in corn. That's pretty funny, isn't it? <laughs> well, okay. So don't eat the, the box. World? I mean, it might be it might be better for you than than what's in the box, but still, don't eat it because I don't know what else is in there besides the corn wax. So, did when you were at Yale, did you major in filmmaking or did you major in like health and wellness or something like that? I kind of neither. I studied American history in college, um, but I was really interested in food and agricultural history, because I do think food is uh, this incredibly important building block on which our entire society is built, and yet it is largely unexamined and largely ignored. And I was really amazed as a college student at how hard it was to actually study where our food came from and what the realities are of modern food production ecologically uh, and socially and economically. Um, so I did my best to kind of cobble together a curriculum of uh, ways of understanding our food system uh, and trying to ask the big questions of, of who does our food system truly serve and who should it serve? And I think all of us, uh, if we step back far enough, would suggest that we should have a food system that is good for people, good for the planet, and good for all the folks along the production chain who make that food system possible. And the reality is right now we have a food system that is making far too many people sick. One in three Americans is overweight or obese. One in two of our kids of color is expected to develop type 2 diabetes during their lifetimes. We have a food system that is dangerous in terms of its environmental impacts and its climate change impacts uh, and the way in which we ship food incredibly long distances before we consume it. And then we have a food system that in terms of our culture is, is in some ways undermining our American values of gathering together around the table to share a meal and engage in lively and productive debate and get to know each other and overcome our common differences uh, by finding the commonalities that we share. Uh, so I see tremendous need and opportunity to create a food system that is actually good for people and place and culture, and uh, and we're a ways from having that right now. Well, how in the world did you and Ian? I, I assume you met Ian Cheney at at Yale. Yeah, we actually briefly met in high school, but we became best friends in college together at Yale. And so you both were from like some. You had family members from Iowa. Like great grandpa- great grandparents. Yeah, we you know like like a lot of the the Heartland stories you hear. Um, Ian and I had been the children of of families that had left the Heartland. So um, he grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts. I grew up in the West Coast in Oregon, and uh, we met in college in Connecticut, and then uncovered on a cross country drive that we actually both had great grandfathers who came from this tiny rural county in northeastern Iowa. And we decided to go back there and to lease one acre of land from a farmer in the town of Green, Iowa, 
and grow one acre of corn the way a typical farmer might grow a thousand acres of corn, and then to follow the story of that corn as it left the field and made its way to America's dinner table. So what in the world did people there in green Iowa think of you from the beginning? Well, Iowans are notoriously polite, so uh, I, whatever they thought, they largely kept it to themselves. Uh, they were incredibly welcoming. Uh, you know, Ian still had some family members in town, and there are still remnants of, of my family's legacy up there. And uh, so it was a chance for us to reconnect with our roots, and people, I think, were really grateful to the fact that we cared about that place and wanted to tell its story and wanted to understand its its hopes and dreams and challenges. Um, and then at the same time, I think uh, folks were really glad we had come because there was an important story to tell. Uh, our nation's food system does not work all that well for the needs of farmers uh, these days. And there are, uh, there's been such a degree of consolidation in the farms in Iowa that, uh, you know, what used to be 120-acre farms are now... 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 acre farms. And uh, that is is the kind of consolidation that has really driven a lot of farming families off the land. So during the time that we were making our film, the local high school consolidated with the next town over uh, because there weren't enough students to fill all the classrooms anymore. And we heard from even the largest scale farmers uh, telling us things like, uh, something has really changed since my childhood, and it, it pains me that I can't bring my child in the cab of the tractor with me, because what I do all day every day is get out in the field and spray neurotoxins. Uh, and that really is the reality for, for a lot of farmers in our country, and I, I don't know that it is a joyful reality for many of them. No, it doesn't sound that way. You know, I, I, um, my family in Virginia, when we, I was growing up, they all had farms, and we'd all gather on the porches, and they'd bring their banjos and their guitars, and they'd whittle together. It was just this huge community. You know, it was just a lot of love and a lot of family. And uh, when I was watching that film, I thought all those small farmers, they, they used to have community around them, and, you know, now it just seems like it's the same amount of land being produced. It's just hardly any people. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really an incredible experience to see the way small towns have emptied out as our agricultural system has gotten more efficient, some would say, but that efficiency has come at a at a really profound human cost and cultural cost. And the result is that uh, these days Iowans are as disconnected from where their food comes from as city dwellers are, um, in that very few people actually are, are out in the fields touching the corn that is growing. And they can't eat that corn. I think that's what blew me away so much. When you and Ian, you pulled off a stalk of that corn when it was ready, and you bit into it, and it was not good. Well, it's certainly not sweet corn. It, it, uh, it is corn that has been bred to maximize the production of starch. And uh, that all that investment we have made in plant breeding and more recently genetic modification to get corn to have more and more and more starch per kernel um, has come at the expense of, of flavor in one sense, but also has come at the expense of protein. Uh, so the reality is the modern corn kernel, uh, as Michael Pollan, one of the, one of the folks we, we consulted in the film as a New York Times journalist, uh, he, as he pointed out, um, really we've, we've 
turned the corn kernel into an engine for starch production that you can think of really as an analog to petroleum. And all the ways you can take a barrel of oil and turn it into a beautiful perfume through one variety of processing or a plastic bag through another variety of processing or gas for your car through a third. Uh, the same is basically true of corn. Um, you can turn that starch into ethanol that you would power your car with. You can turn it into corn-based plastic, uh, or, or you can eat it. And uh, the reality is a lot of our corn gets eaten by humans in the form of high fructose corn syrup, and a whole lot more of it gets eaten by humans uh, in the form of animals that are fed corn. So did those farmers, did they actually eat their own corn, or did they process it all? Well, most farmers grow some, you know, some number of farmers grow grow sweet corn on the side for their own consumption. Uh, Some of them told us they would occasionally grind up some of their corn for cornmeal from the the field corn they were growing on those huge tracts of land. Um, But really, for the most part, this is a commodity that gets harvested, dried, using a remarkable amount of, of propane, actually, and then gets sent off on the rails and in trucks to consumption far away. And that consumption is either by a a big belching corn syrup factory uh, in a place like Cedar Rapids or is off to the big cattle feedlots, most of which are now have been moved to the to the wide open western states uh, where there are thousands of of cattle standing shoulder to shoulder eating a diet they didn't evolve to eat, which is uh, corn instead of grass and having a number of health problems as a result of that diet. Now, did you know a lot of this before you guys started this, or were you just blown away as you went through the process? You can't help but be blown away as you actually visit the places where our food comes from and uh, and see it in action. And I think there's a there's a sense of marvel and wonder that comes with that. I mean, those those thousand acre fields of corn are beautiful uh, in the in the Iowa late summer day light, Um, and yet you also are blown away by. how incredibly industrialized our food supply has become, and that can be a real turnoff. And certainly visiting giant cattle feedlots in Colorado and seeing 4,000 cows standing shoulder to shoulder eating a diet that makes them sick uh, and standing in their own waste did not make me feel like I wanted to go have a hamburger after that experience. No, my mom, actually, I was talking to my mom this morning, and she said that a local farmer next to them started selling um, free-range meat, and she was telling me, because she listens to my show all the time, and she was like, this is getting really big. I'm like, yes, it is. You know, and she said she feels sorry for all those cows that are standing in those lots. And I think that part, when you showed what happens to their stomachs when they eat that corn, because they're not meant to eat corn, they're meant to eat grass. And I know they have four stomachs to process that grass into protein. So when you hear what happens when they eat corn instead, that was pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, our, basically our nation's cows are walking around with permanent bloating and indigestion, uh, and uh, the result is, is a number of cows can get, can get quite sick if you keep them on a predominantly corn diet for too long. And it used to be that we would either raise cows fully on grass throughout their, their life cycle, or we would raise them on grass for a couple of years and then put them very briefly for a couple of months on a a corn finishing regimen before they'd go to the slaughterhouse. And what we've done instead is because you can get cows to be fatter faster if you feed them more corn, uh, and because corn 
has been subsidized by taxpayer dollars in the form of government subsidies that promote corn production, uh, we've been feeding cows more and more corn and less and less grass. And the result is that we get cows to market really fast, but they get sick in the process. And when they show up in the butcher case, they actually have significantly higher levels of saturated fat uh, than cows that would have been fed a grass-fed diet. So it's not healthy for the cows, and it's certainly not healthy for us either. Well, and you said they were just about to die anyway. Their health is so bad that they'll die if they're not slaughtered, like long, you know, not long after. If it goes too long. Yeah, if, if you feed a cow corn for too long, um, they, they do risk getting very sick. And the reality is that just to keep cows in that close a degree of confinement, uh, we wind up having to give them a regimen of antibiotics uh, on an ongoing basis uh, because it just is not a you know, it's kind of like all of us, if we all lived on an airplane all day, every day, and all we ate was airplane food, uh, we probably wouldn't, wouldn't be very healthy either. And so we'd all need to be on antibiotics just to keep us, keep us moving. Uh, and the same is essentially true for our nation's cattle. You know, you'd think all these animal rights people that are so concerned about furs, I mean, you know, they're everywhere. I just don't understand how we can become so more inhumane with animals as time goes on. And uh, and then also, I mean, people are dying younger and younger now. I keep hearing people dying in their 50s constantly. It's like we're going the wrong direction. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm 36. And uh, when I was graduating from college and, and beginning to set out to make this documentary, King Corn, um, I, the study came out in the uh, American Journal of Medicine saying that my generation was expected to have a shorter life expectancy than my parents' generation. And that's never been the case before. You know, the, the march of progress that we imagine human history is, uh, is hitting a real roadblock. And the, the roadblock is our diet. Uh, we eat a diet where one in three of us is overweight or obese, when two kids of color are on track to develop diabetes. And as a society, we are um, bypassing what we know to be healthy large quantities of fruits and vegetables and simple food that we make ourselves and make at home. And we're trading all of that for a fast food culture where we're, we're really eating heavily processed food and a huge amount of refined sugar uh, and an incredible amount of meat that is raised in a way that is both unsavory uh, and may well be unethical depending on your standpoint on it <laughs> and is certainly unhealthy. Uh, for those of us who are on the receiving end of all these processed calories. Now, Big River, did you guys make that right after by watching the river near the cornfields, or did you wait a while to make that? So we uh, made a follow-up film to King Corn called Big River, which we describe as a companion to King Corn, because essentially it tells a story we wanted to tell when we were making King Corn, but couldn't fit into the narrative we had or the hour and a half we uh, we had of time to tell it. And that was the ecological story of how modern corn production works. Um, the, the story of King Corn really focused on how American agriculture has, has trended towards more and more production, and federal farm subsidies have incentivized more and more production, even when the market doesn't demand it. And the result of those incentives and that drive for more and more and more corn 
has been a, a country awash in cheap corn. And as a result of that, the food industry has figured out how to process that corn into corn-fed confinement-raised meat and corn syrup soda and corn oil-fried french fries. And here we have the modern fast food meal as a result. Um, the story of Big River is the story of what it takes to grow all of that corn from an ecological perspective. And the reality is that uh, there is an incredible amount of fossil fuel that goes into growing those beautiful fields of green corn. And it is involved in the anhydrous ammonia fertilizer that gets injected into almost every cornfield across the country at least once a year at the start of the growing season. It's what makes it possible to run the tractors that that run those 2,000-acre corn farms successfully. It's what goes into the petrochemicals that we use to spray our, our cornfields and keep them free of weeds and insects. And then we use even more fossil fuel when we dry the corn. Uh, we use huge amounts of propane as a country to, to get corn dry enough that we can store it. And then after it's stored, we process corn through these incredibly energy-intensive uh, uh, things like high fructose corn syrup factories and the trucking that is involved in getting that corn syrup to an urban market. So um, there's a huge energy expense around the way we produce corn today, and we wanted to tell that story. And there's also a huge pollution story that comes out of what happens when that anhydrous ammonia washes off the fields and down the streams and creates a dead zone the size of the state of New Jersey in the Gulf of Mexico where, where no sea life can survive uh, because the algae down there has been so heavily fertilized by all this runoff uh, from Midwestern farms that it chokes off all the life underneath it. So there was a story we really wanted to tell that was about human health and environmental health uh, related to our acre of corn, and we couldn't fit it into King Corn, so we took some footage we had shot before and some new footage and stitched together a story called Big River. Well, I, I think that you showed the link between herbicides and cancer. And uh, if you think about the water dying down there, you wonder what happens to our bodies after we constantly eat this stuff for decades and decades. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the farmer who we had leased our acre of land from in northern Iowa lost his wife to a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma during the year we were growing our corn. And her doctors at the Mayo Clinic said that was almost surely a cancer that was the result of her lifetime exposure to pesticides. And that's a story that needs to be told uh, to see the degree to which we are poisoning the heartland places that look so pure and beautiful when you drive through them on I-80. Uh, and instead, it's all, you know, for the benefit of mostly urban food consumers, we are turning the countryside into a place where we are day in and day out spraying toxins on the fields uh, that are really damaging to, to folks in rural communities and that have a legacy for those of us who are eating food that, that has a high degree of pesticide residue in it as well. You know, you also, um, you also did another documentary, The Greening of Southing, The Greening of Southie. And, um, yeah. you know, you, you, people, when they hear a green building, I don't think most people really know what it is. Um, and you told that story. Can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, you bet. So we uh, told the story of the first big residential green building in the city of Boston. Uh, green building meaning a, an environmentally friendly building that uh, the, the team that 
designed and built it paid close attention to where the materials were coming from and how those materials were created and what the uh, effects would be of that building on energy consumption, water use, and uh, deforestation in places that are far enough away that you may not think about it. And uh, it was a fantastic story to tell because we had a chance to watch all these hard-hatted, steel-toed construction workers um, who were kind of uncomfortable with the term environmentalist when we started, um, really come to, to love and appreciate building a building in a different way and knowing where the materials they were using came from and knowing that the materials they were using actually were healthier for them and healthier for the folks who were going to live in that building when they were done. Uh, so we got to travel to Bolivia and visit a sustainably managed forest there where the Kumaru decking was coming from for the building. Uh, we got to understand uh, the green roof system that was installed on the top of the building uh, as a kind of living, breathing roof that was uh, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and also keeping the building warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. Um, and we got to meet the people who were drawn to living in a building that, that had its environmental benefits as something it kind of wore on its sleeve. Um, and all of that was, was very exciting to us as a way of, um, of looking at yet another important building block in our lives. You know, at the end of the day, food and water and clothing and shelter are, are still the most fundamental things. Uh, and we had looked at food with king corn, but we wanted to look at shelter with the greening of Southie. Uh, that was a very meaningful personal experience for us to tell that story over the course of a couple of years of living in Boston and following that, the construction of that building. Well, you know, it's it's so exciting to hear about how they can do that. When, when I broadcasted from the SAID Summit in New Orleans, um, a man, William McDonough, shared yep. how he was building the green green buildings and um, creating plants inside and water from air. And I was just so blown away by that. I thought that kind of stuff is what we should be doing, right? And he would say, you know, it doesn't make sense what we're building nowadays. We're not being... Even you know he's so he said all the time you're not be, we're not being logical it does it's not rational it doesn't make sense it's not hard and we should stop doing it the way we're doing it and that's so that was so much like what I got from yours too. You know I think with so many things in our country um, it's about long term thinking and that's something that is really hard to do in a culture that is looking for a quick bump on the stock ticker or looking for a quick buck in our own jobs, how do we start to realize that what we're doing is going to have ripple effects for generations? And we should, we should be selfish, but selfish for our grandchildren uh, yes. rather than just for ourselves. And I think if we can think about our grandchildren and think about the kind of world we want them to live in, it's a world where those basic things of food and water and clothing and shelter are done as respectfully and responsibly as possible. And no person runs the risk of not having access to a home or not having access to nutritious food. And that means we've got a lot of work to do in terms of environmental sustainability to set ourselves up so we're, we're actually handing a planet to our grandchildren that is in good working order. And we've got a lot of work to do around health and wellness to make sure that we are nourishing our kids and our grandkids in a way that they're going to be set up to fulfill their potential. 
Well, that's so true. And I, I think for, for us, you know, we have a wellness clinic. And so we're always trying to find ways to uh, teach people to be healthier. And I think that these documentaries really do that. Now, when we get back from break, we want you to share what you're doing now. And I know your nonprofit food core, we definitely want to talk about that and kind of where all this has led you. So if everyone will stay right there when we get back, Curtis will tell us more about what he's doing now. Life Solutions Coaching and Counseling in Fort Worth, Texas is a full-service wellness clinic providing individual, group, and family counseling, one-on-one coaching for life and wellness, and naturopathic treatments of medical massage therapy combined with essential oils to ensure you reach your health and wellness goals. Sessions are available in person or by phone. Get started on your new life today. Just call 817-232-1363 or go to lifesolutionscoachingandcounseling.com or email them at lifesolutions.com cc at yahoo.com sunshine herbs in saginaw texas on main street business 287 has all of your supplement needs and healthy food products so my suggestion for you visit visit sunshine herbs today and let their knowledgeable staff who know all their products and their naturopathic doctor lead you to a life of health and wellness so that you too can live well listening to Living Well with Ann Beal. We'd love to hear from you with comments and questions about the show. Please send us an email to ablivingwell at gmail.com. That's ablivingwell at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. I'm back with Living Well. I'm Ann Beal, and my guest today is Kurt Ellis, and he is the producer, filmmaker, and um, actually starred in many documentaries about Living Well, is what I call it, but King Corn, Big River, The Greening of Southie, um, and he did these with his friend Ian Cheney, and they were directed by Aaron Wolf. is... Um, all to tell us more about how to eat healthy, live healthy, to stay well. And Ian and Curtis set off to make these documentaries, and they've just been wonderful and wonderfully received by the Sundance Film Festival and the Sundance Channel and the Documentary Channel and A&E Television Networks. And um, they have received funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and we're just so glad to have you back, Curtis. Thanks. Great to be here. I hope I didn't get that wrong. No, that sounded all really nice. Somebody made it up, and it was good. <laughs> There's so much about you, and that's why I try to – I have to stay focused because I know that you want to talk about your nonprofit, and I would love to hear – you know, I, I as much as I could read about it, I saw that you were going into schools and educating children um, on how to eat well, but are you also working with the uh, lunches in the school program so that they get healthier? Yes. So the organization that I started is called Food Corps, and I teamed up with my filmmaking collaborator, Ian, and a handful of our other friends and colleagues from doing food work around the country uh, five years ago and started a national nonprofit that would connect kids to healthy food in school. And Food Corps recruits recent college grads for a year of modestly paid public service 
teaching kids what healthy food is in the classroom, helping them fall in love with it in a hands-on way in school gardens, and helping them eat it every day in school cafeterias. So we do recipe development, we source farm-direct food for local uh, cafeterias, and we work with food service teams to make sure healthy food is being both served and celebrated uh, in around 500 schools across the country now. Um, so Food Corps has grown super fast, and, uh, and we're doing work that really needs to be done, which is connecting kids, particularly in low-income schools, to the healthy food that is going to set them up uh, for lifelong success. You know, it's so interesting to have you doing that when there's this other arm trying to hide everything that's going into the foods from the GMO end. And, um, you know, I'm from Arkansas, but it still bums me out that Hillary Clinton is helping Monsanto, you know, be able to, you know, be able to do the GMO hiding of labels and all that stuff. She's a very good spinner of words. And so you're on the other side trying to educate the opposite direction. Well, we haven't made a particular issue out of GMOs specifically in that we see our job as really connecting kids to healthy food and helping communities retake ownership over what their children eat in school. And I think once you bring the right people to the table, just local engaged parents and committed community members, and you start helping those conversations happen where folks ask the question of, what should we be feeding our kids to set them up for success in the classroom? Pretty soon folks start arriving at, at logical conclusions, which is our children should get an abundance of fruits and vegetables in their diet. They should get food that is simply prepared and minimally processed. They should have a chance to grow new foods and try them and fall in love with them in a school garden and to do a little bit of cooking themselves. Um, and ultimately, we should we should treat our school cafeterias uh, as as extensions of the classroom. They should be a chance to teach kids healthy habits that are going to stay with them for a lifetime. Well, and it looked like you were having, um, which I've seen at you know, quite a few schools around here, they're starting with the gardens and uh, they, they, you know, growing their own food. That's one of the main things that I talk about is just buy from your local farmer, buy local or grow your own vegetables. You know, and you're, it doesn't matter how small of a place you have, you can grow your own gardens. And so for kids to learn that from having their own gardens and even having the cafeteria use that food would be so good. It's, it's amazing the magic that happens in a school garden. I mean, they're, they're great places for kids to learn science. They're great places for kids to interact with each other uh, in a healthy and positive way. But then you see what happens in terms of kids shifting their preferences for healthy food. Um, a big reason why nutrition researchers say children don't eat a healthier diet is that they haven't been introduced to new foods in a way that actually gets them excited to eat them. So if you just plop a spinach salad on a kid's plate, uh, good, good luck having that child uh, say there's somebody who likes spinach. Um, but if the child has actually grown those greens to begin with and has learned to make a simple salad dressing and has put a spinach salad together themselves with some strawberries and spinach from their school garden, suddenly they're incredibly proud of what they have created and they can't wait to try it. And when they try it, they're, they realize they actually like it. And then when the next time around, when you're serving a child a salad in a school cafeteria and set up a salad bar for the first time, um, kids are much more receptive to actually eating that way. 
So who is it? Do I know you had Michael Pollan on in King Corn, um, and, and he's just incredible. If, if it's the Michael Pollan I'm thinking about, is I, I, I saw him on your show, and I hadn't I'd only heard of Michael Pollan, um, the vegan kind of health food person before that, and I thought they were probably the same person. Is it the same person? Um, yeah, I don't think Michael Pollan is vegan, but he's uh, he is a. New York Times journalist and uh, now is a, a journalism professor at Berkeley, and I think he's a visiting professor right now at Harvard. And he's been one of the leading voices in our country around where our food comes from and how we might approach food in a fundamentally different way. Um, and so he, he wrote uh, some articles that if folks listening haven't had a chance to read them, should look up a New York Times article uh, from the Times Magazine uh, seven or eight years ago now called Power Steer, which was about following a beef cow through its life cycle. Uh, that was very influential for mm-hmm. me and my friend Ian when we were first starting research for the film that became King Corn. Um, and then he's written books like The Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, the first third of which really focuses on corn production in the U.S. and its, its resulting consequences for us. Um, and then other books like uh, Food Rules more recently. Um, he's, he's really trying to espouse a, a philosophy of eating that is simple and straightforward, which is to eat real food, as he says, mostly plants and not too much. Now, you had Aaron Wolf directing. What was that like? Aaron Wolf is my cousin, and he had made a couple of films for PBS before we got together to make King Corn. And he was uh, always a, a champion to me for explaining how film really was the language of our generation and could be leveraged to tell a story in a powerful way. Um, and I had the story that I was really passionate about telling, which was around food and agriculture. And so we decided to team up and bring his filmmaking talent together with the background I had in understanding how our food supply works. And uh, so we moved to Iowa with my best friend from college, and Aaron ran a kind of film school in the cornfields for us and (laughs) taught us so much about how to make a film. And uh, he was the guy behind the camera actually making King Corn come to life. That sounds so fun. I mean, it just, you guys look like you were having fun, especially as you were sliding down the big pile of corn and all that. You, you, you took something that could have been kind of dry to educate people and you made it really interesting and fun. And, um, and seeing you guys do all that, even the big river, it was, it was really, I mean, I think I've been trying to educate different parts of my family. And for the first time, they changed where we were buying our meat from a butcher to go down to a free range butcher. And so it did impact them, and I was so excited. It's been an amazing experience to uh, to travel around the country with King Corn and share it with people and have folks tell me that it had an impact on the way they eat or the way they think about food policy. Uh, that's all very, very meaningful. And uh, now that we're busy with Food Corps, this national effort to connect kids to healthy food in school, um, we've had dozens of Food Corps service members, folks who are raising their hands to say, I'm going to dedicate a year of my life to connecting kids to healthy food in school. Um, dozens of them have said they, they learned about food issues from King Corn. And uh, that's, that's really exciting to know that, you know, not only are we shifting tiny behaviors that, that each of us can shift to make the world a healthier and more sustainable place, but we're actually inspiring young people to stand up and say, I know what I want to do with my life, and I want to devote myself to the cause of 
food equity and food justice. And I'm going to do that because I care about food. And, and a piece of my journey has been watching this film and, and being moved by it. Well, I, I figured that you had to have an overall dream with the Food Corps where you want it to take the world. Um, and it, it sounds like that might be it. Or is there more? No, the, the work I'm doing with Food Corps is really where my heart is. So we work in 500 schools around the country to teach kids what healthy food is in the classroom, to help them fall in love with it in school gardens, and to give them access to it in their school lunches. And it's hard to think of more meaningful work to be doing on a personal level. Um, because the statistics are really so unacceptable. The, the government's own estimate is that by 2030, when the current obesity generation is all grown up, we'll be incurring a $1 trillion a year annual economic cost due to the way we eat. Uh, half of that cost will be due to direct obesity-related medical expenses, and half of it will be due to lost productivity. Uh, the reality is that kids who suffer from diet-related disease attain less education, they're out sick more at work. They progress less in their careers. They raise families who themselves are at elevated risk of obesity and diet-related disease, uh, and they die sooner. And that can be described in an economic way as $500 billion a year at 2030 of lost economic productivity. But we also need to realize that's lost human potential, and those are human lives that are not able to fulfill their dreams. And what do we want for our kids but for them to be able to fulfill their dreams? So I see it as fundamental for us to make sure that every child in our country, beginning with those who are most stuck in poverty, most dealing with the consequences of racism around them, most dealing with the, the things that hold kids back from achieving their potential, what can we do to make sure that simple building block of healthy food and good nutrition is in place in their lives every single day and take that small but critical step towards setting them up for a lifetime where they really do fulfill their dreams. And if you think about when you, you know, what school really, when you think of school, the good things to educate them on, the really, really important things, people have always said it seems like they should be teaching them ways to live well, to live healthy, to, you know, be successful, business, you know, money, how to, how to just balance a checkbook and, and these basic skills. But what a smart idea to go into the schools. Cause I was thinking when, you know, about the, the second half of the show, I thought, you know, really food core, that, that's so much more really important than even your films. I mean, your films are out there and they've reached people. But to get to the schools and teach the kids who are growing up so that not only they can, you know, be well and live well, but they can go on and teach the rest of the world. I mean, look at all these little mini yous and even standing on your shoulders being even, you know, their dream to go on from what you guys have done. How many How many kids would that be? Especially if you yeah. keep growing. Yeah. So that's so nice of you to say that, and you know, it it uh, it's 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 really been an interesting experience on a personal level to see different ways of making change in the world. And King Corn told a story about what was not working in our nation's relationship to food, and made a difference in a lot of ways that that we were really surprised by and thrilled by, um, either inspiring individuals to change the way they eat or uh, helping Congress understand the urgency of understanding the farm bill as a food bill, uh, not just as a, as a set of agricultural subsidies that, that don't have ripple effects on the way we eat. 
Um, but then Food Corps has been this much more direct and tangible impact where every single day I sit down and I read the impact reports that our core members send us from the 500 schools we serve around the country. And to hear those stories of the little girl saying, these snap peas must be made out of the same thing that cotton candy is made out of, they taste so good, is just fantastically fun. And to hear from, you know, the little boy in Oregon who said, uh, I think we should rename our school garden the Golden Garden, because when I close my eyes and I think of our garden, everything turns to gold. Uh, those are the, those are the things that motivate me on a day-to-day basis to stay dedicated to this simple work of connecting kids to healthy food. Mm, That's just such a wonderful, wonderful mission that you have. And I've loved, I love the shows and I love the way that it changed my family. And I love that I can keep handing them out to people, you know? And so I just, I thank you and Ian and Aaron and even Michael so much for making these and um, just to keep on. I mean, the fact that you're going into the schools and all that you do to educate children, you know, that's the one thing I thought of. I thought as I was looking through what Food Corps does, I was like, that, that is, that is so important. And I, you know, there is a hospital that was uh, written about that they have a farm where they produce, you know, a garden where they produce their own food. And then they use that food in the cafeterias and for the actual patients' meals. And then their numbers of how well people are getting in that hospital. And I thought that is exactly what we should be doing all over the U.S., that exact thing. And uh, going back to the gardens and using local food, just the food that you can grow yourself. It's, it's an incredibly simple solution, but it is a solution for so many things. Uh, for breaking the the systemic cycles of poverty and injustice, for getting more growing things in the dirt and creating a, a landscape that is really going to be ecologically sustainable at a time of climate change, and for opening our access to healthy food and ensuring that everybody gets a chance to eat good-tasting, fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, all of us can and should be growing a little bit of food. And in particular, if we have kids, we should be getting our kids and grandkids out in the dirt to help them learn those basic skills of gardening and cooking. Um, And it's amazing the ripple effects that come out of it. Uh, You know, even if a garden doesn't produce nearly enough food to serve a school cafeteria at scale, um, we've seen powerful things happen where, you know, if you're, if you're growing radishes in the school garden and kids get a chance to do a taste test from one of their garden radishes, suddenly the radishes on the salad bar are disappearing day in and day out because kids are taking them and are thrilled to be eating them uh, because it reminds them of the radishes they grew last week. You know, that's amazing. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, that if you grow it yourself and you've learned about it, you're much more accepting of it. And uh, what a great thing to do. And that's good to hear because, you know, radishes are very strong tasting. Sure enough. Yeah, if you can do it with a radish, you can do it with <laughs> you anything. Do it with but, a, yeah, uh, you can do it. The, you know, seven out of ten kids that Food Corps teaches either try new fruits or vegetables throughout their year of, of Food Corps education or they shift their preference for fruits and vegetables in a positive direction, or they maintain their already high regard for fruits and vegetables if they like them when they started. Uh, so this is really how you change preferences, and, and that's all about changing habits and changing behavior in a way that's really going to stick. Now, if teachers or principals um, are listening or people that want to have access to what you do, I know you're in 500 schools, but um, they may, you may not be in their school. 
So how would they reach you or Food Corps to find out all about this? Yeah, folks can go to our website, foodcorps.org. It's like the Peace Corps, so F-O-O-D-C-O-R-P-S. .org. We're an AmeriCorps-affiliated national service program. And there are different pathways to get involved. We've got a, a, an incredible community of volunteers around the country. We've got more than 4,300 parents and community members who actively volunteer in food corps schools right now, so you can join those ranks. Um, you also can refer really great people to us who might be interested in becoming Food Corps service members and dedicating a year or two of their lives to teaching kids about healthy food and helping them get access to it in school. Uh, we are recruiting for our next class of Food Corps service members uh, until the end of March. So we will be um, actively taking applications from folks who are interested in raising their hand and devoting themselves to this work. Uh, we expect to have 210 Food Corps service members placed in 18 states uh, for the coming school year. And then lastly, if you're a school or a parent of a, of a, uh, at a school that's interested in getting Food Corps, you can learn about how that process works on our website as well. So foodcorps.org. Well, thank you. I, I, I'm sure people will be looking into that. So you've really grown from 50 service members to 210. And those are all college college graduates or college students? Yep, it's, it's not technically a requirement to be a college grad. Most of our core members are recent college grads, but we've had grandparents do it. We've had non-college bound folks do it. Um, just need to be 18 and meet the requirements for AmeriCorps service to be able to join Food Corps. And uh, it's it's a selective process. We get 1,200 or more candidates each year who apply for those couple hundred spots. Uh, but we're growing as fast as we can, and it's all powered by the generosity of individuals who find it in their heart to donate and help Food Corps grow. Wow, that's wonderful, because I know that people would want to do that. I mean, when you start learning all of this and seeing these documentaries and learning about you know, uh, good food and bad food and how to make it where it doesn't make you sick. I mean, I really try to encourage people, you know, to pay the extra money if they have it to buy organic or to buy free range or to even buy local so that they save money on their health bill. And I say, I know it, it can be more expensive, but it's better to pay the farmers than to pay the doctors. (laughs) And more delicious too. More delicious. Goodness gracious. Yeah. Well, you know, an orange like carrots, it's amazing when you juice them how sweet they are. People just don't realize how sweet tasting vegetables can be. And uh, so as they get educated with the with the things that are actually ripe and not picked unripe and then gassed to color, <laughs> which I guess right. you learn that <laughs> the difference in the taste is amazing. And so educating kids about that, you know, and even educating adults about that is, uh, you know, so amazing because, you know, my parents are in their 80s and um, and they're doing well. And I think of these kids coming up and what they've been eating the whole time. I mean, even, you know, when you talked about you and you and Ian, what you've been eating, you know, once you realize you want to you want to live a long time, especially with a mission like yours. You know, you have a lot of work to do. Sure enough. Now, I know that you have another film, Truck Farm. Um, that was your recent one, right? Yes, we've got a, a few other films. Truck Farm was a whimsical project we created that was the story of a mobile garden we put in the back of an old pickup truck. And uh, really, it was meant to be inspiration for folks to think creatively about where they might be able to grow a little bit of food themselves. 
but the film itself was America's first and, and hopefully last documentary musical. Uh, <laughs> so only watch that one if you're, if you're looking for a good sense of adventure and some humor and whimsy. Uh, but it actually had a, a powerful impact, which is um, we got 25 of these mobile gardens started in cities around the country, and all of them helped fuel this challenge we put out for school children to imagine creative places where they might be able to grow a little bit of food themselves. And uh, we loved seeing the submissions that came in from kids who were creatively thinking, how can we plant food at our school somewhere unexpected? How can we uh, grow food at home somewhere nobody else could think of growing it? Um, and then we also made a documentary film uh, called The Search for General So, which is about American Chinese food that recently wrapped up in theaters and uh, was broadcast on IFC. And uh, you can find that one on Netflix these days if you're interested or on iTunes. Um, and then my filmmaking partner, Ian, has continued making documentaries while, I, while I've been busy with Food Corps. And uh, so I would encourage folks to check out The City Dark, which is a film he made about light pollution and the disappearing night sky, uh, the fact that we can't see the mm. stars anymore because our cities have gotten so bright. And another film called Blue Space, which is about water uh, and is also about the search for water elsewhere in the universe. Wow, that's so wonderful. You know, I haven't I have not seen the search for general so how do you spell that? So PSO. Yeah, I mean <laughs> it's a great controversy how you spell it because Chinese <laughs> restaurant menus around the country uh all point to a different spelling, but um it's the story of how 40,000 American restaurants came to serve a dish named after a dead Chinese general who probably didn't eat very much chicken during his life. <laughs> well, it's it's been so wonderful having you on, Curtis, and just filling us in on all this. And to know all, you know, that we can go educate ourselves so much about the food from watching your documentaries, and we can find out how to get this into our schools here in Texas and around the world to educate our kids about food as well. We just thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And if you listening would like to coach with me or um, counsel, just call Life Solutions Coaching and Counseling, 817-232-1363 for health and wellness coaching, and we'll talk to you soon. In the meantime, have a great day and live well. Thank you again for joining us. Living Well with Ann Beal airs live every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait to see you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.